Hello, everybody, and welcome back to William SB Talk Sports. Uh, today, I have a not a journalist for once. I have a close friend of mine, Jared McCormick, who is a Blue Jackets fan, who uh, may be jumping ship to Atlanta here soon. Huh, Jared? Yeah, uh, the, dude, the news recently, it's looking good for a team to come down here. And I, I pride myself on my loyalty, but with how much we've been through with the Blue Jackets the last couple decades uh, and how much I've come to love Atlanta, it'd be hard not to to jump ship to blue land. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see what happens there just because there's so much uncertainty in the whole world of the NHL right now. Like, I mean, of course, there's a whole Arizona thing going on. I don't think they're going to move. And I think it's important to stress that because there are people who are jumping all over that. But imagine if, like, they did move. And then I feel like if that were to happen in the next round of expansion, they would just get another team back, which would be chaotic. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a little so, weird to just kind of yank that market out and put them right back in like nothing happened. But um, yeah, I hope they I figure think, it out out there. Yeah, because I imagine if you pull them out once, you can't just go back and be like, hey, we're the Coyotes again. You'd have, have to like redo everything, which yeah, starting from <laughs> the bottom in a market like that would not be great. You come back with a whole new roster too. The fans got to get used to a whole new group of guys. That'd just be one of the most awkward situations you've ever seen. It would be, especially because like a lot of those fans would just follow the team that moved to where I would assume like Utah or wherever and still root for them. And the team would be still mainly the same by the time the new team came in. So yeah. it would be very, uh, isolate the market. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of Thrashers fans follow uh, the team up to Winnipeg and keep cheering for them. And I was like, man, it's going to be interesting. If they were to come back here, are they going to, you know, are the fans that ditched them going to receive them well? Uh, but yeah, I think enough I mean, time has passed now. Yeah, especially because the roster is almost entirely different at this point. Yeah, I think like Blake Wheeler's like the only guy left that was regularly mm-hmm. playing in the league back then since. And I think he moved, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he, he moved. To the Rangers, if I remember correctly. I think he may have yeah. been the last tie to the Thrashers. One of those guys. Yeah, and it's interesting because that whole team is – because Mark Shifley wasn't with the team at that point, right? I believe he was drafted after that. Yeah. Or right at the end couple, of it. A couple years after, it was right around that time. Yeah, so it's been interesting, and then oh, – Here's one thing I want to talk about off the rip, just because we are on like that whole Winnipeg type thing. Pierre-Luc Dubois. Um, <laughs> obviously, Blue Jackets fans aren't very happy with him, and Winnipeg fans aren't very happy with him. And at this point, I would say LA fans are probably not very happy with him. Um, it's been an interesting career so far for the former uh, Blue Jackets third overall pick, huh? Yeah, he's like collecting angry fan bases and disgruntled coaches like Infinity Zones at this point. He everywhere he goes and it you can tell it doesn't matter if it's like an, a really nice city to live in or you know anything like that. He goes out to sunny L.A. and it's the same situation, the same lack of work ethic. He doesn't want to play a 200 foot game. He's you know just there to collect his points, his doubt he's accusing him of. Uh, Apparently he's made mention about caring more about being an influencer off the ice than doing what it takes to win off the, or win on the ice. So uh, 
not surprising to me, but I, I just, I wonder what, how they're going to figure that guy out. How do you guys trade? How do you trade that guy again for the same situation yeah. to get any value back? I just don't know what you do with him. Well, I mean, at this point, I think the biggest value you'd get would not be having that contract because if he started next season, he does have a full new move clause until 2028 soft season. So it's one of those things where <laughs> I think if LA is going to say, hey, this isn't working, it needs to happen now. But if you're any other team, are you going to want to acquire him and then immediately get stuck with him for at least the next four years? Yeah, it's a big gamble. You know, is he is he going to actually work for your team? Is he going to be somewhere he actually enjoys living? Like, there's too many wild cards with him that uh, I don't know how any other teams around the league look at him and want to take a shot on him. I think it's going to have to come out of desperation where uh, a team really needs a center because a big injury came up or something like that, uh, where they really have no other option. Yeah, and realistically, this is the first time I'm thinking a buyout after the first year of a contract would be a viable strategy. But yeah. looking at that, it would take his cap hit until uh, they'd be basically on the cap form until 2037, 38, mm. <laughs> which hockey's body. Uh, yeah. I can't imagine any ownership group being like, Hey, that's a good idea. We want to pay this guy 14 years. <laughs> To get out like, of town. Yeah, I mean, it's rough just to see. Like, I think the uh, Blue Jackets definitely dodged a bullet here. Not really out of their own choice, but, the, I mean, he kind of forced his way out. But this could have been even worse for Columbus. Yeah, and, you know, I, I know the trade, the return they got uh, also hasn't panned out as well as they had hoped. Uh, you know, initially we're looking at a, a Rossel Dick Line A return, and we're thinking, wow, like if Line A scores anywhere near the pace we know he can, and Rossel Dick kind of finds his game and and finds a role in this team, it could be huge for us. But uh, you know, both of them have, have had their own struggles, and it's been tough. But it is nice that they're both guys who who want to be here, and by all accounts, I think have have done what they can to uh, to contribute. So I'd rather take that over a guy who has a horrible attitude is just going to bring the people around him down any day of the week. Yeah, and I'm curious what happens here with Jack Roslovic coming into the offseason. He is currently the only pending unrestricted free agent forward on the roster. And they really I don't want to say they don't need him, but he's not really a key piece like they've hoped he would. And with the log jam we're starting to get of young players, I think it would make sense to kind of move on from him at this point. Yeah, it's tough to admit because he's the Columbus kid, you know, one of the few that we have in our organization. And, you know, we obviously want to see him do well here and and find his way here. But you look at all the, the young kids coming up that are going to be taking these top six, middle six roles in the next couple of years. And even right now, um, it's hard to see where he factors into this lineup, especially – uh, he's getting paid $4 million now. If he asks for anywhere near that, uh, it's going to be hard to to keep signing guys the next couple of years as they get their raises. So tough to see, yeah. but that's the business. And I think it's worth saying, I think at $4 million, that is worth it for Rosselvik. 
the only thing is, is on a team like this, where there's a lot of uncertainty and all that, and his inconsistency for the most part, it's yep. difficult to justify. And he's having another down year this year. I mean, 10 points through 27 games, only two goals. It's not great. I mean, it's weird to say he's been inconsistent when the last two seasons he put up 45 points, then 44 back-to-back, which is almost the definition of consistent. (laughs) But it's just over the course of the season, you'll see a lot of play kind of – he'll play good once in a while and fall off a cliff other times and bounce back. And He's not a player you can count on every game to be a difference maker, which I think is – if with the lack of cap space they have and – a lot of basically an abundance of underperforming players. If you're giving that much money to somebody, it needs to be somebody who's going to be playing every night consistently. And that's not Rosselvick at this point. Yeah. I mean, looking at our, our forward roster on cap friendly right now, he's got the second highest cap hit among our forward group. And you're not getting that production from him to, uh, to really say that, yeah, he's, he's making uh, every penny worth it there. And you look at, Cole and Kirill are going to need raises soon. Kent Johnson, like there are a couple guys in the next year or so that uh, you're going to want to keep around. They're going to be key pieces for a long time. And you're going to want every dollar that you can uh, within the cap to, uh, to make that work. So especially because you don't know, I don't know how much the cap is slated go up the next couple of years. It's been kind of slow movement on that front. So uh, the dollars matter big time. Yeah. I think it's, if I remember correctly, it's going to be around $4 million coming up this year. And just a note for those listening, in case you are listening, in the future, at the moment, Patrick Wine is not on the roster, which is why his cap hit is not being factored in when he said second highest paid. Um, so that is important to remember. But I think that is basically the tough thing is what do you do with all these young players and how do you keep someone who he deserves to be on the team, but he doesn't necessarily need to fit in with the current roster construction. Yeah, that's that's going to be the uh, big challenge for either the current regime, if they somehow stick around, or the next regime is sifting through all these guys and, and figuring out who's going to be where, what's everyone's role, and uh, what's the path going forward. <laughs> yeah, I think, to me, the most interesting contract is probably going to be Kent Johnson. Because he is having a down year this season. He had a great rookie season, as we all remember. But he's also a 10-2-C restricted free agent. Which means, for those who don't know, he can't be offer-sheeted. Any other restricted free agent on this roster can. But Johnson can't. He can only sign with Columbus no matter what. So that puts a lot of, basically, a lot of it in the team's ballpark. Because whatever they offer, he kind of is stuck taking to a certain extent, unless he holds out, which I don't foresee it going that route, but it wouldn't be the first time if the current regime stays in place that it's happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting there. Cause like you said, he's had a down year. He uh, you know had the demotion to Cleveland earlier in the season seemed to really come back with a lot of confidence though. I, I think that would, that one really helped him a lot. And even though he's not putting up the points per se, 
just seeing the difference in his game from this year to last, he seems a lot more confident with the puck. He's finding ways to hold on to it for that extra split second, but not too long uh, to open up that space for teammates. And uh, he's been really crafty. So I think it's only a matter of time before he kind of lands on a stable line and, and get some good chemistry going with line mates that uh, some more points start to fall in the basket for him. Uh, so maybe we see some sort of nice bridge deal that he can kind of establish himself and then really cash in a good payday in a couple of years. You know, what's interesting to me that we might see potentially is because if you look at it, Johnson is uh waivers exempt as is Fantilli, Vronkov, Chinikov, and of course, David Yurichek, which is, who is very not happy at being in the American Hockey League, which we'll talk about here shortly. But I'm curious, as you get close to the end of the season, the Cleveland Monsters are currently fighting for a playoff spot. Do you just send them down there to play some meaningful games at the end of the season? I think it wouldn't be the worst idea in the world, would it? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't hate it. You, we look back... Uh when Wierenski and Bjorkstrand and some of those guys years ago were, uh, were down in Cleveland when they went on that Calder cup run and it was invaluable for them that they still rave about how, how big of a deal that was for them and how much that set them up for their careers going forward. So yeah, I wouldn't hate it. I like, obviously I want to see these young guys play some games at the end of the season and I'm going up to the game in Nashville. So I would love to see our team as close to full strength as possible. Um, but as far as their development goes, I, I do think that would be beneficial for them at that point. You know, the games are so meaningless in April when you're that far out of the race that you might as well give them something to play for. Yeah, and I think for Juracek in particular, which we'll get into his whole situation here shortly, I think it'd be huge for him because there'd be a reason for him to going down, which right now there's not. He's basically just going down because they – have a mess on the blue line that they haven't been able to fix, which I mean, management probably should have foreseen this coming because I have nothing against Damon Severson, per se, but you know your check's coming up, so adding another high-profile right-handed defenseman when you already have good Branson and Peak as well as Boquist on the roster might not have been the smartest idea. And then I think if you're going to go out and give these assets for defensemen, your best bet would have been to get like a top flight uh, right-handed defenseman instead of getting two, I'd say, second-pairing defensemen who are just kind of taking up space at this point. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, their game really thrives on puck movement, offensive, uh, you know, they're, they're both power play guys. So we're kind of lacking – another good anchor back there to really stabilize things. Um, and I think a guy like Juracek pairs really nicely with a guy like Zach Wierenski, where uh, he can kind of sit back, let Z roam a good bit, and he can clean up the messes when they come, uh, especially since he's not the best skater. That's one of the big things you're trying to work on with him. Uh, you don't want him up and down the ice as much. But you get all these offensive guys – and they're paired with each other, and the D just becomes a bit of a mess. Yeah, and I mean, Elvis Merzlikens is playing better this season than we have seen from recently, but still not playing at a super high level. Um, not one that justifies his contract, at least. And now that he's requested a trade, that makes things even more difficult. 
I mean, it's really what do you do with a player who doesn't want to be here that you can't move? Yeah, no, it's like, oh, he requested a trade. He didn't request a trade. It's, you know, did he have a mental health breakdown for a second where he kind of just lost it and, and said what he said and then kind of reeled it back in? Uh, yeah, he's he's had an up and down year where he's probably just trying to sift through the fact that the team's not winning and he wants to win more than anyone. And, uh, you know, that that takes a toll on you when you're back there expected to live up to a certain contract and you can really only do so much. Yeah, and it's very weird to think about the fact that there were three almost identical contracts signed that offseason. You had Merzlikin signed his, you had Jack Campbell, and you had Cal Peterson. And all three of them have ended up being terrible for the team that signed them, which is kind of a unique circumstance, I'd say. It Goaltending in the NHL is becoming a bit of a toss-up, and these guys deserve the contracts when they got them, but it seems like you can't really count on giving goalies big money anymore. Yeah, I think more than anything, it's becoming hard to commit to them and know that you're going to get a consistent effort. It feels like with a lot of them, it's only a matter of time before they hit that wall where you know things just start going wrong and you either find the adjustments that they need in their game to get them back on track or they've got to go down to the AHL and they never end up coming back up. Um, I know a lot of it's mental at that position. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting the last couple of years, how there aren't near as many trustworthy number one goaltenders that, you know, you could throw in there for 60 games a year if you need to, and you can depend on to carry that load. Yeah. And there's one thing I want to get your opinion on. I've kind of run this by you. I think I mentioned it to you, but it's something I'm working on article wise, but Andrew Peak, I remember when he was coming up, he was kind of touted as this good offensive puck-moving defenseman, and management and John Tortorella at the time, they had just moved on from David Savard and needed someone to fill that role. Do you think him having to basically entirely change his game ruined what he could have been? I think it's definitely gotten in the way of yeah of his potential and it's not all bad I watch watching him last year was really a breath of fresh air compared to watching a lot of other guys because he was still giving max effort laying out to block shots I think he was one of the leaders in the league in block shots last year Um, and it's good to see guys being willing to take on that those sort of gritty roles that you need when you need them but when it comes to him as a player, uh, I remember in Notre Dame hearing about him, you know, manning their power play and everything. And yeah, I, I think that completely changing up his game at that point in his development, he's still only 25 years old. Um, I think it really kind of stunted the type of player he could have and should have been. Um, but yeah, it's just what happens when... <laughs> when your roster is constructed in a certain way that you need to ask certain guys to take on responsibilities that maybe shouldn't be there. So uh, I think, I think it's a lesson in making sure that you draft the right people and put the right pieces in the right places to uh, not ask too much of certain guys. Yeah. And I think they've gotten better at that in recent memory. It seems like a lot of the players are being drafted and just allowed to play their normal style of game. 
that is what happens under John Tortorella in particular is he wants a certain type of player. And if he doesn't have that certain type of player, he's going to make you into that certain type of player. And it does breed some success, as we're, we saw here in Columbus, and we continue to see in Philadelphia this season. But in the long run, it does do some damage, it seems. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's a lot of value, I think, in the message that John Tortorella speaks to every player about the intangibles you need to bring, the work ethic you need to bring. Every player should be, you know, going into quarters hard, battling for pucks, you know, Winning battles should be top of the mind, mission number one at all times for everybody. But there are certain guys that just are not going to be the crash bang on the forecheck type that, you know, you really can't expect them to entirely change their game, especially not if they're, you know, smaller guy, like under five foot 10 and not the strongest build. You know, you can't expect like a, a Wenberg to, to take on that type of role and be good at it in this league against other grown men. It's just not going to work that way. Yeah, I think if you're looking at Winberg, looking back at him, I think what would have worked for him more than anything would be be a Pavel Datsuk type defensive player, like where he's not necessarily physical, doesn't really block as many shots, but just work the stick, get stick lifts, poke checks, find a way to get the puck away from them without necessarily having to use your body as much. I think that's what they needed him to do, as well as just lay off of him a bit. I mean, I know everybody got frustrated when he didn't shoot the puck. It was clear. But when you look at Jakub Voracek, he did the same thing, and nobody really cared because he was a more complete player and able to do his own thing and create those chances. Winberg just never got the opportunity to mature into that, I feel. Yeah, and, and I think we all wanted him to shoot the puck more, but I think it really became this thing where he got in his own head every time he's got the puck on his stick in the offensive zone. It's like he has to think that extra second. Is this a situation where I should be shooting it? Do I need to shoot this? Or can I trust myself and make the extra pass and try to open up something? And uh, it just kind of harmed his decision-making ability in those instances because game's so fast. You can't be thinking, you know, when you're on the other. You have to pretty much go on instinct alone. You have to be programmed just to to make the right plays. So. Uh, when you get him thinking too much out there, it's just not going to go well. And here's a bit of a weird question for you. Have you ever looked at Winberg's stats over in Sweden? Uh, was this back before he got drafted? Yes. I have not. Actually, one year was after he got drafted. But I think this is going to blow your mind here. So his first – well, the year he got drafted, his draft year – he was playing in the Elsvenskan, which is the second tier of Swedish hockey. He had 14 goals and 18 assists for 32 points in 46 games. That sounds about what you would have expected from Winberg at that time, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe some more, maybe a couple more assists, but it's surprising. He's got all that, that goal scoring. I, I'm sure that on those teams, he was just really able to play free and like he naturally kind of picked up the right times to shoot the puck, the right times to make the pass, and it resulted in a balanced stat line. That's not the one that's going to blow your mind here. So the next season, the year, his, the year after his draft year, he made the step up to the SHL and played with Frölunda. He had 21 points in 50 games. Guess how many of them were goals? You can tell me like all of them or something, maybe like 19 and two or something. 
16 and five. Wow. It's like Marchenko's so, rookie year. <laughs> yeah. He, so the capability to be a goal scorer was there. And realistically, when he first came into the NHL, we had the kid line, right? Him, Scott Hartnell, Marco Dano. He didn't need to shoot, really. And that was still under Todd Richards at that point. But I think realistically, his best season was 2016-17 when he had his 59 points in 80 games and 13 goals. But I think after that is when he started getting his own head because Tortorella kept saying, shoot more, shoot more, shoot more. And the numbers just dropped off pretty drastically from there. And, I mean, he really hasn't even bounced back with Seattle or when he was in Florida either. He's just kind of middled out as a middle six center when he probably could have been more. Yeah, I, I think he absolutely could have been like a, a a Nick Backstrom type if he was on a line with a guy who can really shoot the puck and then maybe another guy who has the ability to go to the net and kind of open up space. Um, but yeah, we were never able to really set him on that path and it shows. Yeah, I mean, it's... Because I didn't know about the SHL stats in particular until this year, but I mean... Scoring in the SHL is difficult, and I think a lot of people don't really think about that, especially, like, I think it would have been 19 at the time. So the fact that that's where he had more goals than assists is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And, I, like, to that point, too, with how tough it actually is to score in that league, I believe Bemstrom had, like, maybe 20 goals that year before he came over here when he was like leading the scoring race or at least the rookie scoring race over there. So it's, yeah, it's not a super high scoring league. Yeah. I mean, especially for the young players, it's, they struggle with getting used to it because it's not like in for the Americans or Canadians where, okay, you're going to the NCAA or the CHL and playing against people your age. He was playing against former NHL players, future NHL players, and guys who probably could have been in the NHL but decided not to. I mean, he was playing against pretty much all these skill guys who should have been a lot better than him, but he was competitive with them. Yeah, and he comes over here and somehow doesn't translate. <laughs> and the thing is, is if you look at that 16-17 season, it shows you how good he could have been. I mean... Would anybody argue with him if he was a 60-point guy every year? No, I, I mean, yeah, can't ask for much I, more than that. And the issue is, is they did ask for a lot more than that. And <laughs> it just never worked out. And I, I get why. I mean, if you're John Tortorella, if you see, okay, this guy can get 50 assists easy, let's get him to get 20 goals too. Like, yeah, that's great. But it wasn't necessary. And that year ended up being an outlier as a result. And it's really unfortunate to see. I mean, he's stepped up his goal scoring for sure. Uh, I mean, with Florida, he had more goals than he assists in his one season over there, which is also weird. But, like, he had 17 goals and 12 assists, which – shows that that potential was there as well. He could have been a 20-goal scorer because I was in 56 games. It's just 
they never found the right balance with him. And unfortunately, it ended up costing him a very good career. I mean, he's still having a very good career, don't get me wrong. But there's a difference between maybe around maybe a thousand game career that he could get could have gotten to where I don't know if he's going to do that the way things are working out now. Yeah. And not to mention the millions of dollars that would have come with that. <laughs> yeah. Still making, definitely... still making a good chunk of change, but he could have gotten sizable raises along the way if, uh, if things went optimally. Yeah. And I mean, at six one one ninety six, I mean, all this, everything was there. Like everything was perfect for him to do it, but unfortunately it just never really came to be. And so generally the reason why I brought all that up is because as we mentioned earlier, they're kind of doing a similar thing here where they're holding back a young player for really no good reason with David Yurichek. Of course, it's under different circumstances where instead of trying to change his game entirely, they're basically just turning him into a yo-yo between the AHL and NHL. But I don't get what this regime's idea is when it comes to developing players. I get you want to play big minutes, but are you really telling me there's three people on the NHL roster who are right-handed who deserve minutes more than David Yurchek? Yeah, I mean, the eye test and the underlying analytics pretty much tell you that he's one of the top four top six at least defensemen in this organization but i don't see any reason personally that he shouldn't be playing here but i also completely understand there being some value to playing big minutes down in the ahl really dominating that league uh because defensemen are so much trickier to develop than a forward uh especially a guy that's going to be lugging big minutes and shutting down top players in the NHL, hopefully for years to come. So, you know, I get both sides that someone to see him in the AHL, someone to see him in the NHL, whatever you decide, you have to have a clear plan in place and you have to be on the same page with him. And clearly that hasn't been done or he wouldn't be talking to the media like this. Uh, that's the, the portion of this that bothers me the most is that, they go on this road trip to Canada. They bring him along thinking, oh, we're going to need an extra defenseman. Okay, yeah, you're probably going to need an extra defenseman going all the way out there. But why Why is Blankenberg not that guy? Like, why isn't it anybody else who you're okay with sitting in the press box when you know this guy needs to play? It just doesn't – none of it adds up at all to me. Um, and J.D. went on uh, one of the local Columbus shows yesterday and kind of did damage control with it even tried comparing it to when he was in the league and when Yarma was in the league, which is like, isn't even comparing apples to oranges because JD was a goalie. I think Yarma was a forward. I can't remember. Um, I think he's a defenseman, also, but okay. either way. Either way, I mean, it was like 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, Maybe even 50 and, with, with JD at this point. So it's an entirely different landscape, entirely different situation. Um, I just don't understand the plan and what they're trying to do. Yeah, like, to take it further, it's like comparing an apple to a battery. There's nothing in common there. Yeah, I mean, okay, they uh, they both energize things, technically. That's about right. as close as I can get to a comparison. <laughs> okay, then let's go with this. An apple and a screwdriver. <laughs> mm, 
Yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything there. <laughs> I'll go with that one then. There's no, I can hold them both in my hand. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, I guess it depends on the size of the apple, but... <laughs> or the, yeah, or the size of the screwdriver. Maybe it's a huge novelty one that does massive screws. I mean, I would be surprised, like, working in the mechanic field, diesel... Uh, mechanics in general they have some very big tools so i wouldn't be surprised if there's like a giant screwdriver that just makes zero sense somewhere yeah just a big screwdriver you've got to turn with a whole another machine <laughs> probably yeah <laughs> and so i want to kind of segue this over to there's a lot of restricted free agents on this roster we've got alex texier we got ken johnson as we mentioned earlier we got Real Marchenko, Cole Sillinger, Emil Bimstrom, Yegor Chinnikov, Jake Bean, and am I missing anybody? I mean, if you get further down, like we'll talk about Blankenberg and I guess Marcus Bjork. I guess you could say Jake Christensen. Those ones all kind of affect the NHL roster in a way. But it's interesting to see what they do with this because realistically, I know some people might disagree with me. I think Nick Blankenberg is an NHL caliber defenseman. And he's just kind of being stuck in this giant log jam. He's not going to be, I'm not saying he's a top four guy, but as a bottom pairing guy or seventh defenseman who gets into the lineup occasionally, I think he'd be phenomenal for a lot of teams in the NHL in that role. Um, Bjork and Christensen are kind of fringe guys, but everybody else, they're legitimate NHL players for the Blue Jackets at this point. I mean, I guess you can argue Bibstrom's not, but overall, what do you think they do with these guys? Do you think all of them come back? A few of them get cut loose? What's your thoughts on it? I uh, I think there's going to be a lot of tough decisions for sure. I, I don't think every single one of these guys are going to be coming back because I don't think there's going to be room for them moving forward. Uh, you know, you look at a guy like Bibstrom that, we've hung on to for the last couple of years, really tried to find a way to get him going. He's added some things to his game that I like, but I don't think it's enough and it's not what we need to, to keep him here. So I think he's a guy that probably goes, um, look at some of these other guys, even Texier is a guy that um, he's got some good jump. He's, he's feisty, he's crafty, but is he the right guy for a fourth line role potentially that he's been playing most of the season? I, who knows? You know, I think you're, re they're really going to want to open up the log jam as much as they can uh, for these young guys coming up. There's going to be even more, hopefully next year uh, with guys like Dumay, hopefully making a push for the roster. So, um, and assuming there's a new regime that comes by, you know, around June, July, they're probably going to want to put their own touches on this roster and really, really reform what's going on here. So I, I think some of those guys are, are definitely going to get cut loose. And uh, there are other guys like Marchenko that you obviously you can't let go of that guy. Cole Sillinger, uh, Chinikov has been outstanding this year. His game, I can't say enough good things about him. Uh, the way he's really turn his speed into an even deadlier weapon than people realized before uh, in addition to his shot. So plenty of guys you got to lock up, but a couple, uh, it's going to be tough to find a place for him. Yeah, I will say 
in terms of European drafting, I think that's where this current regime really shined in certain regards. I mean, between Chinikov, you have, uh, as you mentioned, Marchenko. These guys are guys who other teams didn't really know much about, and the Blue Jackets took advantage of it. And that is one thing I will give credit to Yarmo and JD over. They paid attention to that, and it really did benefit the team. But there are a lot of negatives they've done as well, which haven't helped their case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll definitely – uh, agree to give them some props for drafting some of those Russians. Our our history with Russians isn't great, but it didn't stop them from going after some of these guys. Like all three of the big Russians, Marchenko, Chinikov, and Voronkov, have been unreal since they came over here. From I mean, Chinikov took a little while to uh, to get his game going in the right direction, but it took pretty much no time for Marchenko and Voronkov to make a difference, and uh, that's really impressive. Yeah, I did have some concerns about Chinikov, not his play, but especially at the start of the year when he got sent to the American League, I was very concerned that eventually he might just say, you know what, I don't want to do this. I came here to be in the NHL, and I'm not doing that, and he kind of went back home. That was a concern I have. Luckily now, it seems like he's here to stay, which he definitely should be. But the fact of the matter is they've had – trouble prioritizing who needs to be important to the franchise and who doesn't i've noticed yeah and i i think it comes when you get you get a log jam you get a lot of young guys that are pushing to make the roster um it becomes tough to manage all of them and fit them all where they need to be and where is best for not only them and their personal development but for the team moving forward uh it just kind of looks like they've acquired a lot of talent but they didn't have a plan going in as to where they were going to fit all that talent. They're trying to figure it out on the fly, uh, which is obviously going to lead to some of the mistakes they've made along the way. But uh, again, thankfully, some of them have still managed to pan out and have stuck through the bad like Chinikov did uh, rather than going back home to Russia, which is obviously something you worry about with a lot of the Russian born players. So uh, it's good to see. And I wonder if maybe that's part of the reason why the planning was difficult to do. Because who knows, maybe they thought two or three or one or two of these guys would have never came over in the first place. So they, when they decided, oh, yeah, I'm coming over to North America, it kind of forced them to change their plans and everything, which they weren't ready for. I mean, I guess that's always a possibility as well. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to have contingency plans in place. You definitely uh, – you'd rather have it and – or. You'd rather have it uh, – trying to remember what the quote is I'm trying to say here. But anyways, uh, you, you don't want to get stuck where you need talent all of a sudden because you didn't draft enough of it. Uh, I think if you got too much talent, that's that's a good problem to have. So uh, yeah, they'll sort through it. And I think that's always been the Blue Jackets' problem. Is To me, it seems like they always have a lot of mediocre talent but nothing that really stands up above them. And that's great. It's great to have good depth. It's great to have a bunch of guys who can be your second, third, fourth liners and who could fill in if somebody gets hurt. The issue is, in the current NHL, if you don't have a legitimate top line, a legitimate top pairing on defense, and, I mean, you can get by with a decent goaltender, but if you don't have that, you're not going to succeed at all. 
Yeah. Uh, you can win by committee. You can, you know, you can run four lines pretty evenly and it, it works for a couple teams, but the vast majority of the teams you see at the top, they've got a couple game breakers, a really solid top pair and, almost all of them have a goalie that they can turn to at any given moment or even a tandem like they have in Boston uh, yeah. that just never seems to miss a beat. The only exception to that rule I'd say was probably Vegas because they're so good defensively. It doesn't matter who they have in the net. They'll be fine regardless. <laughs> yeah. And I'd even say like Nashville had been like that for a lot of years where uh, they didn't really have a game breaker up front or, you know, any serious, serious top line talent. Forsberg was maybe the closest one they had to that for a little while. Um, but they always did have like two top line defense and like they had two top pairing defense or two defensive pairings that could be the top on any other team in the league. Just about, uh, I remember seeing yeah. their like top six defensemen from maybe 10 years ago now where like Subban is playing on the second pair and everything. It's like, how did they get away with building this blue line? Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is it didn't look where it ended up getting them to though, is if you excel in one area, but don't have the other, it seems like there's a limit to how far you can get. Yeah. And it's hard to say Nashville didn't deserve to win a cup because they probably should have with that team they had. But the clear reason why they didn't, is just because they never really had the forward group to do it. I mean, they had phenomenal defense, phenomenal goaltending, but it was that forward group that really let them down, I feel like. Yeah, and I know they had a couple tough injuries that year, too. I think that was the year Johansson was out with the knee injury and I think at least one or two other guys up front had some tough injuries uh, that could have been big role players in uh, especially the late rounds, but yeah, you can tell that uh, the lack of a game breaker was holding them back for sure. And Ryan Johansson's another interesting player because I feel like he was good with the Blue Jackets, never really uh, tremendous. And I mean, he obviously went downhill after going to Nashville compared to what he even was in Columbus. He had a few good seasons there, but never really he never really peaked after the 2014-15 season. And now he's with Colorado. He's doing pretty good as a role player, but it's interesting to see the trajectory of a lot of these players who were drafted in the early 2010s by the Blue Jackets. It seems like almost none of them really became what they wanted them to be. Yeah, I felt like that was like our black hole of all of our uh... – really high-end prospects just never panning out i mean trying to remember we feel i think we had one maybe one draft pick in there that really hit and the rest were just it was a black hole for a couple of years 2013 we had three shots at it and pretty much not one of them panned out so yeah and here's a question for you i want to see if you remember this do you remember what ryan murray's nickname was when he was a blue jacket in the locker room in the locker room, no. I mean, the fans called him Glass Man and all kinds of other stuff like that because he kept getting hurt. But So I, I don't remember where I heard this, but I do remember hearing multiple times the other players called him Norris because they thought he had that level of talent, but he was just never able to stay healthy. And I think that really makes it rough because he could have been a phenomenal player for the organization he could have been a great nhl player 
and now he's 30 years old and he's basically out of the league. And yeah. I think it speaks a lot to the fact that this organization doesn't have an issue identifying talent. I, you know, I, I think there've been plenty of drafts too, where, uh, you know, on the day we were excited about who we picked. We thought like, Oh, okay. I like this pick. You know, this isn't crazy that they're not trying too hard here. They got, I think they got the right guy. We had a pretty good feeling, but then years down the road for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, stashing them down in the AHL or trying to force them into roles up here that they're not ready for. We weren't able to develop them and put them on the path that they needed to hit their ceiling. Uh, I think that, that really illustrates it right there when you've got even his teammates saying this guy's going to be a Norris trophy contender for years to come. And obviously injuries played a big part in that, but now years later, basically not in the league anymore in what should be his prime. Yeah. And it's, I think the tough thing too, and I think this goes with any team looking back at historical drafts is who they could have had instead. I mean, if you look at 2014, do you know who went one pick before Sonny Milano? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to remember it as soon as you say it, but I know I've seen this it was one. D- Dylan Larkin. That's right. Yeah. Do you know who went one pick after him? No. Travis Sanheim. Hmm. And then Gosh. one pick after that was Alex Tuck. Uh, one pick after that. Say what you will about him as a person, but Tony D'Angelo, <laughs> Nick Schmaltz, Robbie Fabry, Kasperi Kapanen, and then the streak ends when you get to Connor Bleakley, who never made an NHL appearance. But it continues right after that, too, because then you go to Jared McCann and David Pasternak. That's right. I I knew Pasternak was one of those that one year, like, how did we miss on this guy? But yeah, I mean, you can go back to so many of those drafts and I, I try not to do that too much because like, you know, obviously it's, there's really no point. Like there's so much that changes between uh, the time you get drafted and now, you know, 10 years later, but to see, all the what could have been's, what should have been's is really, really tough. Yeah. And I, I think this one in particular, it's one of the more extreme cases because it's not very often you're going to see basically six teams hit on a quality NHL player in a row. <laughs> yeah. Right after you make your selection. But I mean, it could be worse. Uh, it could be the Islanders who took. Michael Del Call that year. Yeah. I mean, heck, the the Oilers had first pick after first pick, and some of you know, like Yakupov didn't pan out. It's not like we're the only team that has had issues developing what should be top end talent into legitimate NHL stars. Um, but yeah. you know, you see it, you've seen the struggle through this organization in particular up close for so many years that you can't ignore it. You want to know a really rough draft that I had never even known about until right now? So 2012, 
So the Buffalo Sabres in 2012 had the 12th and 14th overall picks. And now I'm not saying anything bad about these players because they were decent role players and one of them still in the league. But 12th overall, they took Mikhail Grigorenko. 14th overall, Zimgis Gergensons. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, 2012 was a bad year for the draft. I mean, but they got kind of what you could expect out of that. But I feel like having two first-round picks and that's where you end up with is a guy who played less than 250 games in the NHL and then basically a bottom six center is not what you're hoping for in that situation at all. Yeah, well, I mean, you say that, and we did the very same thing next year with three picks instead, and you know, only one of them yeah. is still playing in the NHL, so... Well, and the thing is about 2013, too, that was, I would say, a much better draft as well. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> because, I mean, if you look at the top seven, eight, nine, basically the top ten picks are all still in the NHL. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have McKinnon, Barkov, Drewen is borderline i would say but he's staying up somehow uh seth jones elias lindholm who's now a vancouver canuck uh sean monahan darnell nurse rasmus ristolainen bo horvat valerie nachushkin i mean (laughs) yeah that's like i feel like this is one of those situations where if the blue jackets had been slightly worse and ended up with like the eighth or ninth overall pick instead of the 14th that draft would be remembered a lot differently. Yeah, I, and I think I remember going into that draft too, hearing about some of the depth of talent like that that was uh, that was expected, and I, I was so hyped. I'm like, there's there's no way we don't at least get one like game changing player here that pans out and makes a big difference. And sure enough, we basically whiff on all three of them. Well, and the thing is too that's really strange about that draft is the fact that if they would have even ended up with Jason Dickinson, they would have been happy, I would say, compared to what they ended up with. Yeah, even even one of those picks goes a little differently and we get a guy who makes a difference like he does. Yeah, you're looking at it a little differently. At least feel like you got something out of it. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I will say, I have to clarify, I don't think Alexander Winberg was really a, a bust, really. Because he is averaging just under half a point per game in the NHL, which is a very impressive statistic. And lasting 10 seasons in the NHL on its own is also very impressive. It's just a matter of the fact that he should not have been the best player they got from this draft class for what they had. And, I mean, Kirby Reichel played 43 games in the NHL, while Marco Dano, he played a respectable 141. And his career... I I don't understand Marco Dano's career personally. It's such a weird one to look back on because he looked like he was going to be a star when he first broke on the scene. Yeah, I if anyone's guess what happened with him. Um, looking back, I'm trying to even remember uh, out of his draft year what I was expecting, what kind of player I was expecting. But I just remember towards the end of his tenure, it just felt like he had turned it into 
turned into a grinder. Like he was always in the bottom six and kind of more using his body to do much than anything. Like just no tools really stood out. Um, so very, very interesting well, to see that he just couldn't hang on there. So here's, I think, what happened with him. So 2013-14, he played in the KHL and came over for 10 games in the American Hockey League. 2014-15, he makes his debut with the Blue Jackets, puts up 21 points in 35 games while spending the other rest of the season in the AHL. Then the, I believe this would be the uh, Brandon Saad trade happens. He goes to Chicago. He puts up two points in 13 games, gets sent down for a bit. A few months later, he gets traded to Winnipeg. He plays there for about a year and a half, two years. Then he goes to Colorado. And then they don't tender him. He comes back to Columbus. And then by 2020, he's out of the league. It's really one of those things where what could he have done? Yeah, I can't say he could do too much more. I think is another situation. It's on us that we we didn't uh, just didn't develop him properly. It's a broken well, record. I don't... But... <laughs> I don't think it's even really on the Blue Jackets at that point because he was with the organization for about a year and a half at that point. But if you're Chicago, like, why do you give up on him so quickly and flip him to Winnipeg? Then, because basically at that point, when he's been on three teams in three years, his first three years in North America, he's guaranteed to fail at that point, I feel like. Yeah, that's true. Like, and I mean this is one of those cases where you can't help but feel bad for a player because he should have had at least a decent career. And he's currently still playing over in the check in Czechia with, but he's out with a lower body injury. Last time he played was looks like November 24th against, I don't know what team this is. Uh, Boleslav. I'm terrible for those type names, but Hmm. Like he's still doing his own thing, which is great for him. It just really does kind of suck that he wasn't able to make it work in the NHL. Yeah, I remember fans in Columbus like really wanted to see him succeed too. I think uh pretty sure Danny went by Danny Smith went by Danny Dano for a while on Twitter. So uh I, I do remember that, yes. Yeah, I know our fans were uh in love with him, really wanted to see him pan out, but just wasn't to be. Yeah, who knew there'd be this much talk about Marco Dano on a podcast in 2024? There are some guys, <laughs> some names just stick around with you for a while that, you know, it's like those those memes that go around on Twitter where it's like, you know, don't talk to me. I'm in the group chat with the guys naming random relief pitchers. You know, Marco Dano is one of those guys I'm naming random forwards from 10 years ago that people would bring up. Yeah, it's just. I feel like everybody wanted him to succeed so badly because he just was such a likable person is yeah. what I got from him in his short time with Columbus. And I remember when, he, even after he left Columbus, I think he would come back and go to the practice facility and just sit there once in a while. Like, he really embraced being a Blue Jacket and seeing his career cut short by almost no fault of his own just because he couldn't get a regular rhythm, it's rough. Yeah. And those are the guys, the guys that want to be in Columbus because, you know, it's not easy to 
get somebody to truly fall in love with Columbus. Maybe, and you know, maybe you got to really get them here and win a year or two with them and, uh, you know, to get them to see what it's like and, and understand how good of a city Columbus can be. But it's not one of those destination cities that uh, people instantly are like, I want to go play there. Uh, so when you get a guy who really buys in that quickly at that young age, you have to make that work. Yeah, and unfortunately they didn't. And it's worrying to see that they might be making some of the same mistakes here coming up. But we'll see what happens going forward with a lot of these young guys and go from there. But meanwhile, we should probably transition for a bit. That was a lot of Blue Jackets talk. Uh, We have some other sports starting up, namely baseball is coming back here soon. I know you're a big Atlanta Braves fan. What do you think they're going to do this year? Uh, well, to take a page out of Spencer Strider's book, it's World Series or bust for us. <laughs> uh, coming off a 104 win season, uh, reloading the clip like we've done, and even improving the team from the lineup we had last year, which is like crazy to even think about with how talented that group was. Uh, this entire group is 100% dead set on we're we're going for the World Series or it's a failure of a season. So. Uh, fully expecting them to win the NL East pennant again um, and hopefully show up in the playoffs and we aren't cold and we can kind of keep the momentum rolling a little bit better than last year. It's obviously hard when you've got the kind of week off if you're uh, one of the top seeds while the wild card plays out, but um, I think they're going to really hone in and make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think it's pretty much going to be the same as always, just the same teams they have to keep an eye on. Basically, you have Philadelphia, you have Miami. Other than that, they should be cleared to go, basically. I don't think you're going to have to worry about the Mets or the Nationals really fighting them too much. Um, Even uh, Miami is going to be a little bit hit or miss. I mean, I could see them taking a step forward. I could see them taking a step back. It just really depends on how that entire division goes. Yeah, you can pretty much bet on the Phillies being a strong contender most of the way through unless they have a bunch of injuries or something like that. Uh, but the the Marlins are really a box of chocolate, so you don't know what you're going to get with them year to year. Uh, two years ago, they were really like challenging for a wild card spot. Like, they were actually a you know a, a tough out. And they were a tough team that uh, it wasn't going to be an automatic two out of three or series sweep when they came to town. So. Uh, I think they've made a couple changes to uh, their coaching staff and front office. Uh, they had some pitchers out. Some of their younger guys were in and out of the lineup last year, but they've got enough good arms that, that they can be tough during the season to, to get wins against. But yeah, the nationals and Mets, I don't think we're going to have to worry about too much, despite the fact the Mets like still have one of the biggest payrolls in baseball. <laughs> they do. I will say if it's World Series or bust for the Braves, they are going to have one big obstacle in their way, and I think I know. I think you know who I'm talking about here. Yep, it's obviously the, I know it's the Dodgers. <laughs> the Dodgers who just spent a billion dollars, mainly in deferred money. It's in a seven-game series. I have to imagine getting past them is going to be tough for any team, even the Braves. Yeah, I mean, I know we say that. The Braves are a deeper team than LA. That's kind of the, it's been an argument of, uh, you know, do you take the team in LA that has 
top heavy top end talent at the top of their lineup and you know pretty good starting pitching or you take the Braves at like one through nine anybody can beat you on any given night but I think the Dodgers have a little more depth than people give them credit for and some more difference makers towards the bottom of their lineup than than people realize that you know I wouldn't I wouldn't write them off I wouldn't say that you know we're gonna we're guaranteed to take them in five or six games like it'd be a seven game series that could go either way uh, no matter who you're a fan of so that's pretty much that's kind of our World Series is beating the Dodgers uh, to get there, um, but yeah, they're they're not going to be easy with Shohei. Yeah, and I think this year out of any year is going to be the one opportunity where it's basically wide open to do so because if I remember correctly, he's not expected to pitch this year, correct? Yeah, I and maybe not even next year. I can't remember how long his. Uh, uh, recovery time is expected to be with Tommy John, but uh, uh, yeah, he's not going to be on the mound for the foreseeable future, at least. That helps. <laughs> but we still yeah, got to get I him mean, out at the plate, so not easy there. And I mean, even without him on the mound, the Dodgers still have a fairly strong pitching staff that's going to make it hard to beat on basically yeah. any given night, whether you're getting their first starter or their fifth. I mean, no matter who you're going up against or if they go to the bullpen, it's never going to be an easy night. So, it's basically going to be a battle of can the Braves high-powered offense. I mean, they had three guys over 40 home runs and one guy who was over 50. I mean, if anybody can beat a pitching staff like that, it would be the Braves, but it's a matter of can they do it consistently over a course of seven games, which is going to be very hard to do i would say yeah i mean we couldn't even get our offense going in the the postseason last year so it's uh it's not like we're immune to the slumps and uh and teams being able to get our, even our entire lineup out on a night uh i think i saw a couple one or two games last year that bobby miller pitched in for them and i think at least one of them he maybe held us to one run went like six or seven innings that was a guy that i was like i do not want to see him in a postseason start because We've seen guys like Kershaw have their struggles, but that was a kid that I'm like, he is a dog out there, and he knows he can get any of our guys out. That's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with baseball, too, is there's always going to be a team you don't expect. I mean, who expected the Texas Rangers to go out and beat, I believe it was the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series. Like, I don't think anybody had that one. Yeah, you get the started, right vibes so. in baseball at the right time and the sky is the limit for a team. You got guys that love coming to work every day and they just get on a heater and, you know, enjoy what they're doing, feel good. You can, you know, you can go as far as you want with that. Yeah, cuz I'll be like to me, baseball's always seemed less talent-based rather than who's focused properly at the right moment. Like, I think most guys in the MLB are near the same skill level, especially for hitters and all that. Just a matter of who is better at getting focused and getting the timing right and just all that. And I think that can happen to anybody at any point. You just never know. Yeah, like a, a lot of times it's a matter of a small adjustment for a guy that uh, can be the difference between, you know, hitting like 10 home runs and 40 home runs. Uh, a guy like Jared Kalanick for the Braves is uh, a good candidate to watch to see that in action this year. Uh, you know, highly touted prospect 
throughout the last couple of years that never really panned out for uh, Seattle. And he comes here, he's already talking about, he likes the way the park play is a little better for him. He's already excited to get working with the coaching staff and, and be around the atmosphere here. So I think it's a matter of making a couple small adjustments to his swing that could make him an entirely different player. And I know there were times where um, Acuna made small adjustments to his swing and his approach. Austin Riley did the same thing. And, you know, they snapped out of cold streaks and just went, you know, through the roof, uh, went on some, some of the hottest streaks that anyone's had the last couple of years. So uh, yeah, definitely, definitely big part of baseball is uh, timing of your hot streaks and, and making the right adjustments at the right time. Yeah. And it's, can we crazy to see what team kind of gets hot this year and push themselves to the next level that nobody expected from them? I mean, there's a lot of candidates, I think. Um, and it's going to be wild to see because, like you said, you never know who it's going to be because literally any team can just take a massive step forward at any time. It's not as predictable, I would say, as some other sports can be where you can kind of pencil in the standings before the season even starts. Over the course of 162 games, a lot can happen. Yeah, hopefully a team like the Reds can can take a big step forward with some of the young guys they have there. I know that that fan base deserves some, some brighter days ahead for sure. <laughs> Speaking of the Reds, the biggest thing for me with them is I hope Joey Votto signs somewhere. <laughs> I yeah. feel kind of bad for him not <laughs> – landing a place but you would think at least toronto would be like hey let's go get the hometown guy let's go for a run here but yeah it's genuinely shocking to me that we're now into february and he still has gone on sign because obviously he's a big name player that could probably ask for plenty of money but he also doesn't need the money at this stage like this is a guy that if he's gonna play he probably just wants a shot to win a world series and he wants to have fun. Like That's a guy who loves to have fun with everything he does. So you know, I'm really surprised there's not at least one team out there with a spot on their bench or even some needs at first base You know, every other day uh, that can be a good mentor to the young guys and really just be a good guy in the clubhouse that people gravitate towards. Um, yeah. Maybe that happens in the early season. The team finally opens up that idea and realizes it. But yeah, I can't believe we've gotten this deep and that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and I think the key thing with him is, even though his hitting has gone downhill the past few years, if, say, you're in the bottom of the ninth, you just need someone to get on base, I mean, I don't know anybody I would trust more than Joey Votto in that situation. Whether he gets a hit or he gets walked, he's going to find a way to get on base more often than anybody. Yeah, obviously at this page, there's going to be, uh, or at this stage of his career, there's going to be a power decline, but he's still got one of the best eyes for the strike zone that we've seen in this game last 25 years or so. So yeah, you get a big situation like that, or you just need a hit. Probably not too many guys. You could probably count on one hand, the amount of guys you should realistically trust more than Joey Votto. Yeah. I mean, as a 40 year old, I think there's a lot less trust in him that there would be 10 years ago. If he was in the open market, but I mean, overall, he's a great player still who's not going to hit the best average, but he's not going to strike out much either, and he's going to walk quite a bit. So 
if you need someone, just find a way. He'll find a way no matter what it takes in general. As they say, he still bangs. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but it's apparently looking through like just some basic stuff. It says that the Padres might go after him. Same thing with the Angels. But with these older players, you truly never know because it wouldn't be the first time everybody's like, everybody's surprised he's still on the market and nobody ends up picking him up. So I hope his career doesn't go out that way. He definitely deserves a lot better, but he absolutely deserves a farewell tour. Even if it's not with the Reds, like it feels like it should be. That's a guy that absolutely deserves his flowers at every away ballpark he visits during his last season. Uh, unreal, unreal guy, both on the field and off the field. Yeah, I'd be kind of surprised if we get to opening day and he's not signed somewhere. If the Reds aren't, you know, like, you know what? Come back. We'll give you some money. Just be on our bench. Like, because, I mean, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, it, it could be one of those cases where teams at, at this point are just going to go into spring training with what they have and, uh, you know, assess from there. And if they realize they still have a need, then they can kind of address it at that point. I know the Braves uh, a year or two ago, I can't remember who it was that we kind of waited to sign until real late. I can tell about it spring training, but uh, I know I've seen some teams do that in certain situations, so. Yeah, I think if he doesn't end up anywhere, the Reds need to just bring him back for that one last tour and just kind of tell him, like, hey, this is the last we can do for you, but you've been loyal to us. We need to be loyal to you. I mean, heck, if they if they sign him for, like, just a couple million dollars, you're probably going to make that back at, you know, at the gate with people that want to come see him for his last season. You know, you're going to yeah. – it's not going to be the worst financial decision you've ever made. So <laughs> I don't know why you would Yeah, wouldn't. I mean – I mean, at this point, he'd probably take like a fairly league minimum type deal. I mean, I can't see him asking for too, too much. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would hold out for, you know, a hard line number that he has in mind. Yeah, it's just interesting to see where that will go. But I think with that, that's pretty much all we have time for today. I mean, going, I think, well over an hour at this point. And it's been a great conversation got a lot of talk in here uh go ahead and give everybody your socials where they can find you and we'll go ahead and get it closed out yeah i'm uh at the atl goon spelled exactly how you think it is on uh instagram twitter pretty much uh not really on well facebook doesn't even have handles so it doesn't matter but yeah instagram <laughs> and twitter i'm always on there always talking sports on twitter so I'll try not to yell at you if we have differing takes too much. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't hold them to that, but we'll see what happens. I can get a little fiery, but I always come back around if people are, are civil in the end. So sometimes that's hockey. You drop the gloves, you trade a couple blows, and then you say good fight and have a beer with the guy afterwards. <laughs> yeah. But it was great having you on, Jared. Uh, definitely see how the Braves do this season. And we'll hopefully have you back on here soon, mid-season. Go ahead and get checked in on there. So uh, thanks to everybody who's listening, and we'll talk to you guys later.
Music used is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Uh, more information in the description.